Before we start, I have a quick word from this episode's sponsor. The University of Nevada, Las Vegas invites artists to apply for the Fall 2024 Masters of Fine Arts program in art. UNLV's three-year fully funded program with an emphasis on creative practice offers 24-hour access to private studios, graduate assistantship funding, and opportunities to engage with a dynamic roster of visiting artists, all within the unique context of Las Vegas. We welcome artists from diverse backgrounds who want to participate in the dialogues within contemporary art and culture through art making and exhibition to apply by February 1st, 2024. Visit unlv.edu/art to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope you're ready for the long weekend with friends and family, maybe catch up on sleep. I know I'm totally ready to sleep some more if I can. In the meantime, I've got you covered with this week's episode as I talk with Ashley Hairston Doughty. Ashley, currently an associate professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, is a visual storyteller, explaining personal experiences through verbal and visual language. Ashley's research on BIPOC design pedagogy was published in the award-winning Black, Brown, and Latinx Graphic Design Educators by Princeton Architectural Press in 2021. She holds a BFA from Washington University in St. Louis and an MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. We had a quick chat about how moving around the U.S. has impacted Ashley's work, what is visual communications, and how motherhood has affected and influenced her current project. As always, stay safe and healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. Uh, it's been all right so far. I've been up for two hours. <laughs> so, two hours? Yeah, not a whole lot has happened just yet. Are you in your office? Um, it's my studio at home. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I was looking at your Instagram. I saw you've lived in, like, a whole bunch of places. I was just looking at your, the shorthand, like, I guess, in Indianapolis, in, uh, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Knoxville, Chicago, Nashville, and Houston, Las Vegas, right? Las, L-A-S? Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, I noticed you've moved around. I was curious if you could, you know, talk a little bit about where you grew up and how did you fall into becoming a visual storyteller? Well, I I was born in Indianapolis and we lived there for a couple years before we moved to St. Louis, lived there for a couple years, then moved to Cincinnati. And I would say Cincinnati was some of my earliest memories where I really started to get into art as a kid. Yeah. I had a really awesome art teacher who taught me all sorts of different types of art making. So we were in Cincinnati for about four years and then moved to Knoxville. And I would say that's where I grew up. My mom and my brother and his wife still live there. And 
I was there until through high school and then I moved back after college. So yeah, it was there. Like I still was able to delve into art, but the South of the U.S. is a bit different than other parts of the country. The arts aren't really prioritized quite as much. So that affected where I ended up going to grade school. Like instead of going to public schools, we went to um, private schools specifically because I was interested in art and Mm. that allowed me the best opportunity. So that means your parents are really supportive of you from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Because obviously going to private school is not cheap, but they knew that I was interested in art and yeah, with the the public schools that we were zoned for, they were actually cutting their art programs. So yeah. Yeah. And you moved a lot because your mom and dad were, they had a specific job that kept taking them to different places. Yeah. My dad was in labor relations. He studied law and he got better and better opportunities. So with each place we moved, he got a better position, better pay and whatnot. Yeah. It was one of those things where it was beneficial for our family financially, but it was difficult, especially moving from Cincinnati, where you know I was just starting to make friends and feel really comfortable to move to Knoxville, where um, yeah. it felt completely different because I was very much in the minority yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, I... I... I I moved also when I was seventh uh, eighth grade, and yeah, my parents always tell me like I had a hard adjust adjustment. I was from New York City to New Hampshire, so it was a very different change, just people wise, place wise, everything wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and then so you then went to get a BFA from Washington St. Louis in graphic design. Is that correct? Um, yeah, so I knew I wanted to get out of Tennessee for college and I heard about WashU. It, it's got a reputation for overwhelming people's mailboxes, <laughs> at least really? when I was in I school. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of letters and emails and not emails, but physical mailings from WashU. But it was my first choice because they have a really good design program but it also included a track in illustration. Mm -hmm. And so I really was more interested in doing illustration, the graphic design. It was a situation where I thought, well, I'll do illustration, but then I have a graphic design background to fall back on. Mm -hmm. And so I was there for four years and then thought I was going to like move to New York and be an -hmm. illustrator and Mm -hmm. all of that. And that did not work out. (laughs) Like you, you Um, you moved there and tried or you didn't even get there? No, I actually visited a friend who had moved there right after college and she was not happy. Like she was literally living in a closet Mm -hmm. and just, you know, not just not happy living there. What year was this? Um, that was like 2006, 2007. Okay. All right. Yeah. And I just was not the type of, I'm not the type of person who was willing to just take a risk and move with nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wanted to have something lined up beforehand and I ended up moving back to Knoxville and staying there for about three years. I worked for a graphic design firm there, really small one and gained a lot more experience in design. And then I began to look at graduate programs and learned about the School of the Art Institute and applied there, 
got into their post-baccalaureate program where I would do the post-bac for a year and then move into the MFA. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's really where my interest in visual storytelling came about. Yeah. When I went to grad school, I knew I wanted to improve my art and I also wanted to teach at the college level. Mm -hmm. So those were my two main goals. Other than that, I didn't really know what to expect. Those are my goals too when I went to grad school. (laughs) Yeah. And with SAIC, there's the program was very open. We had to take certain classes as part of the visual communications MFA, but I took a lot of other classes in other areas. So I actually took a creative writing course and ended up having an advisor in creative writing. I did a lot of work in fibers and materials, and that's where I started screen printing on fabric. And I did a lot of book binding and letterpress printing. Mm -hmm. Ended up being a TA in our letterpress studio there. Mm -hmm. Did a lot. Yeah, I was able to take all these things and put them into my design work. And I never before that point thought that my design and and art could come together in that way. Mm. I always felt like they were very separate. Yeah. And I always felt like the work that I would be doing as a professional would be more for clients. Like if I were to do any work related to myself, it was Mm going to be just kind of personal work that nobody else would see. Yeah. And what year was this when you went to SAC? I started in 2009 and graduated in 2012. Oh, okay. I, I, I was looking at SAC. I got in, but I decided not to go, but I, I did the sort of visiting in 2012. So okay, I was, I was there briefly. Uh, yeah, and I had one question, which I've been wondering for a while. I'm curious, what for you is visual communications? Because, like, I guess, how does it distinguish from, say, graphic design or the art that you were doing since you were, it seems like you were allowed to take all those art classes for visual communication at SAC? I feel like it's used as an all-encompassing term. Okay. Because even the the program at WashU when I was there was called visual communications, and it covers any type of visual messaging, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So anything where there's a specific message that's to be provided to a target audience. And a lot of that goes into more commercialized art and design. So when I was at SAIC, there were several of my professors who did things like visual narratives Mm -hmm. and artist books Mm -hmm. and They were using typography, being selective about the fonts they were using and using all these principles related to design, but in pieces that reflected something very personal or something that maybe what wouldn't be so commercial. Yeah. And there happened to be other things going on in my life at that time while I was in Chicago that made me feel more comfortable or maybe even like I needed to insert myself into this type of work. And I feel like that was really a launching point for me in terms of the work I would continue doing. And then um, after Art Institute Chicago, you went directly to Las Vegas? No, there were a couple other cities in between. So I ended up getting a assistant professor position at Middle Tennessee State which is in Murfreesboro, just south of Nashville. Okay. 
She went back south. Yeah. Well, my my family is still in Knoxville and mm-hmm. Nashville is only a three hour drive away. So it was nice to be able to go back and see my family. Yeah. And it was at the point where Nashville was just starting to get really, really big mm. in terms of popularity and they just people got a wanting hockey to team, didn't they? move there. <laughs> now they had a hockey team for a while, oh, oh, but okay. they, they've been really, really good the past oh, few years. Okay. So <laughs> but yeah, my husband also went to high school in the Nashville area. So that also kind of played into us moving there. And we actually got married in just outside of Nashville. So hmm. we anticipated being there for a long time, but there are a couple things that happened literally at the same moment that prompted us to move to Houston after being in Nashville for three years. Mm-hmm. The first was my husband got offered a job in Houston and unlike the job he currently had where he could be remote with this job, he had to be on site. Mm. And then my father was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Mm. And at that time through a whole another story and it was in Houston at that time. And so when we looked at a map where my husband would be working and where my dad was currently living in Houston, it was literally within a mile of each other. And so we decided, you know, we should just go and it allowed, allowed me to have more time with my dad that I otherwise wouldn't have had. Yeah. And then it really kind of helped jumpstart my husband's career and put him down a path that he was kind of looking for anyway. What does he do? Um, he works for a food broker. So they work with restaurants and other places that would purchase food to mm. sell to the public and then with manufacturers. So connecting different manufacturers with potential restaurants and things of that nature. His dad was in the food industry, so he already had a pretty strong background in it. And yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I saw your most recent solo show was at the Barrack in 2020. What was that all new work that you showed or was it a sort of a mix? It was a mix. So, um, I would say maybe two thirds of it was older work. Some of it was work that I had done in Chicago or before I moved to Las Vegas. And then the other third were pieces that I had done since moving to Las Vegas. So it kind of showed how like the evolution of my work, but also very, it also shows how my work has changed depending on the location I've been in. Yeah. Because the work that I made in Chicago was more trying to sort through all the emotions I was feeling with the things people would say to me and out in public, complete strangers. That was different than when you were in Knoxville, you mean? Yeah, it was different because I was in and you know, still am in a relationship with a white man. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason in Chicago, other black Americans feel like they can just say whatever they want and without consequence. And anytime he and I were out together, there was a good chance that somebody would say something derogatory about us being together. So the work that I was making and ended up creating for my thesis was really started by these things that people would say to me in public and just trying to find a way to process it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think I saw one of your pieces, you made a bunch of pillows with what people had written or what people had said to you. And then, yeah. And then they were kind of 
reused in a lot of different places. I'm curious, so from that, how did your work change as you moved, I guess, back to Knoxville and then Houston and Las Vegas within that framework that you're talking about? Yeah. When we left Chicago and moved to Nashville, I thought that, you know, moving south, I would we would encounter similar interactions, but maybe more from white people than black people necessarily. But Nashville is actually pretty diverse and mm. nobody ever said anything. Interesting. Same in Houston. Houston is incredibly diverse and seeing a interracial couple is not a big deal there. And I found the same to be true here in Las Vegas. So I didn't really have um, these this documentation of conversations or words from other people to put into my work. I did try, especially when I moved, when we moved to Las Vegas, I tried to keep a practice of writing something every night. Oh, that's good. Um, I tried that, but yeah. I haven't been able to keep it up. <laughs> yeah, I did it up until... 2020 pretty much. And then that oh, just wow. derailed, like the pandemic derailed everything. Yeah. But I would write about some interactions I had or just things that I noticed that were really interesting about living in a place centered on entertainment or living in the desert. Mm -hmm. And so my work kind of became more reflective of location and of the point I'm at in my life. So there was the work kind of looking at the Las Vegas area and then other places I've traveled and then looking at myself as a middle age, almost middle-aged black woman and trying to decide like what the next steps in my life would be. So in particular, like two pieces, the series is called Procreation mm -hmm. and one piece is called Push and Pull and the other is called Fortune Be My Guide. Mm -hmm. And both of them were made to help me decide if I should have a kid or not, basically. Wait, you use you use um, that to decide? And not entirely, <laughs> but it was supposed to, it was kind of reflecting how uh, I was yeah, yeah. getting to that decision. These are the paper fortune. Yeah. Yeah. So Fortune Be My Guide is a, a cootie catcher that in school, we would use to just play games and stuff. And with that one, the idea is I would choose a path and the fortune would be revealed to me, like what the outcome of that choice might be. And then push and pull was a way to show the rotating thoughts I had of the pluses and minuses of having a kid. So... Mm. You know, the plus sides might be some of the changes to my body, but then the negatives could be possibly having really serious health issues due to my age or putting a strain on my marriage or things of that nature. So it was just two, it was two different ways of showing these thoughts that were going through my head. And I saw that piece, but could people also pick up the cootie catcher? I never actually never called it a cootie catcher, but could people use it themselves or how, how is it sort of supposed to be used by the public? The actual fortunes are very specific to me as mm. a black woman in a biracial or interracial relationship. Mm -hmm. But I found that when people did read the fortunes that there were several people who could relate to mm. the things I was mentioning, because part of it, some of the fortunes were just related to world events, you know, yeah. climate change and war yeah. and things of that nature that make the future feel so unpredictable Crazy that it really can impact whether or not you want to like bring offspring <laughs> into the 
yeah. into the world. Yeah. No, I I totally understand. But you you ultimately had had the kid though, right? Yes. That that also happened in 2020-2021. There's a lot that happens. But wait, the Fortune Cootie Catcher piece was made 2022, right? Or I started it in 2019 oh, okay. at a residency at Otis College in LA. In LA, yeah. Yeah. And then the pandemic hit and um, for as a professor, we switched to virtual learning. So that was a huge curveball. We were stuck inside, like all normal aspects of life were thrown off course. And, you know, my husband and I were just at a point like, okay, like, we don't have a kid now, it may never happen. So let's just go for it. And yeah, like I found out I was pregnant in September 2020. And had our son in April, 2021. Crazy. So while the show at the barrack was going on and some other big projects were happening, I was actually <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> so it was a lot happening at one time. Yeah, I can imagine. And then I guess what the past three years was, was sort of raising a kid. Yeah, I kind of took a bit of a break. Um, I actually, I want to say like before or right after KP was born, I received a grant to attend a residency for letterpress printing called In Cahoots in Northern California. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It was sponsored by the College Book Arts Association. Mm. And I was supposed to do it. I think I was supposed to go do the residency in 2020, but the pandemic happened and then our son was born. So I, I didn't end up doing the residency until last summer. But during that time, I did start working on a a new project that, once again, was more personal. It's a book that I'm going to be putting together that takes quotes from my dad and my husband's father, who also passed away from cancer a couple years ago, and puts them together for my son because he's actually named after both of them and never got to meet either grandfather. So, Like they're both middle names or... Um, his name is Carrie Peyton. So Carrie is his, is my husband's dad and Peyton is my dad. Mm-hmm. So I wanted a way to let KP, that's what we call him for short. Yeah. Know a bit more about his granddad since he never got to oh, meet them. That's really sweet. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of interesting how like I kind of fell in love with these ideas of storytelling much, much later, but I also am like starting to appreciate and wonder how to kind of sometimes ask my parents about their stories. Sometimes I feel like it's a little personal, but also at the same time, they're like really precious. So I think it's sort of great that you're making this project. Yeah. I I mean, it does make me wish that I had asked more questions to my dad just to find out, you know, more about his thoughts or feelings, but he was the type of person, like he loved family and, Mm had no problem talking about how he grew up or what his parents are like. So thankfully between the things I had, like even old letters and cards that he had given me and then things that my, my mom and brother remembered, I was able to put some, some quotes together that I think will be really good for KP as he gets older. Yeah, totally. And do you know like how long the book is? So the way it's going to work is one half is for my dad. One half is for my father-in-law. I think they each have 
maybe uh, 16 or so pages, and then they meet at the middle. So I still have to trim everything down and I want it to make, I want to make it more like a board book, but it's, it's been fun because not only am I experimenting with letterpress, but I've also been trying to work with color changing pigments. Okay. Oh, like from the light? Yeah. And it's really kind of just for fun. Like there's really no, it's not necessary for understanding the, yeah. the story or anything, but I used pigments that when you take them out into the sun, they become brighter. Mm. I mean, that's been kind of fun too. So I think really that residency being able to use the letterpress for two weeks straight yeah, wow. and experiment with how I arrange letters and the pigments I used, it was a really good opportunity. Yeah, I can imagine. The One of the big things for me in terms of looking at residencies has been access to a letterpress mm-hmm. because I did a lot of it in grad school, but there's no studio or press for letterpress in this part of Nevada. So doing a residency is kind of the best way for me to <laughs> be able to use one. Yeah. I think if there were another project, I start to flesh out and maybe it involves dyeing and screen printing fabric, then that would affect the residency I look at. Or if I want to do more silkscreen printing, then maybe that's another one that I look at. But here lately, I, I really have missed letterpress. And so that's the kind of equipment that I've been looking for in terms of finding residencies. I think that's like a very specific need. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) I I was in Pittsburgh for my master's and then there was like a couple that like was able to buy like one that someone was throwing out and they refurbished it. But that was like the first time that I like saw one and just the amount of, it was like this huge thing that took up half, half the room. Yeah. So, and I was like, I'd never seen it before, but it was really cool. I was like, I think this object sculpturally is like kind of amazing to kind of look at. Yeah. So it looks like, yeah, your main project, this is upcoming book. Like, I'm not sure if you have anything else in the works or any shows that are coming up, any kind of shout outs or. Um, I am going to be teaching a workshop at the women's studio workshop in New York state in July of 2024. Students in the class will be working on creating visual stories Mm. and be also using um, a risograph printer, Mm. which I've only used a couple times while I was at the Otis residency, but we also recently got one at UNLV. So I'm hoping to test it out and try some things over the next few months. And then we'll use the risograph at the Women's Studio Workshop to make things like zines and other types of books. Yeah. And people use kind of their own experiences as content for the books. Yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool machine. When I saw people use it, I was like, wow, it's like, it's like very like hands-on, like illustration. Yeah. There's like certain immediacy to it that's really kind of unique as an object. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, combining xeroxing and screen printing yeah so you kind of get the immediacy of of xeroxing but then you can layer colors like you would for a screen print so it's pretty cool yeah and uh, where can people find you to learn more about your work and your writing 
Um, so my website is ashleyhdowdy.com. That's where I keep the most recent projects that I've worked on. And then I also am on Instagram at Ashley H. Dowdy and also Design Kettle. All right. Thanks for reaching out to me and allowing me to speak with you. Yeah. Thank you, Ashley, so much for chatting. Uh, it was great to talk with you and, you know, learn more about your work. And like I said, I really enjoyed how you kind of are tackling these stories. So it's great to finally hear your process about it. Great. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate it if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.